Do you want to hear about great work happening in schools around the world? Just Schools are life-giving places that address feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. Dr. John Eckert digs deep into the current educational landscape with research, experience, and a good dose of humor and humility. Join us in the desire to do justice, love kindness, and walk with confident humility. Get inspired with stories of improvement in the profession that makes all others possible. Welcome back. We are in our second episode with authors, uh, and this is one of my favorite authors from a book that I read last year and actually got to know uh, David very well over the past years. We're doing a research project together between the University of Mississippi and Baylor University. David McGee is one of the most transparent and honest people that I've met, and he's drawing attention to some of the most challenging issues in our society. The thing that I appreciate about him is he doesn't stop with the problems, and he gets closer to ways we can improve conditions that will lead to flourishing and things that will bring joy uh, and life instead of stealing joy and life. And he is well positioned to talk about it because he nearly lost his own marriage due to addiction. He nearly lost one son who was in a coma for several days uh, because of addiction, and he lost his other son to addiction. And so there's not a lot of people that I have ever met that have been through as much as David has and is as willing as David is to talk about it in a compelling way. So I'm excited for you to hear from David McGee. Today, we're here with David McGee, who has become a great friend over this last year, and we're working on developing materials alongside schools to develop thriving school communities by drawing students toward life-giving pursuits rather than those that steal life and joy. David is the best-selling author of Dear William, and right now, he's traveling the country talking to students, parents, policymakers, educators about the way we're allowing substance abuse to steal joy and rob us of the richness of life. This is a deeply personal story for David. And any of you that have read Dear William know where the source of that story comes from. But for those of those of us who haven't read it, uh, those of us who haven't had the chance or who would like to, I, I definitely recommend it. It was one of my favorite books that I read last year, even though it was hard to read. Um, would you just tell us a little bit about what brought you into this work, David? Yes. Thank you so much, John. And this is probably my favorite uh, podcast appearance I'll do because I appreciate your work so much and your care for students and and also care for teachers and educators. And and I really appreciate that. You know, for me, um, writing Dear William, my memoir was not, you know, I I had a purpose in it, which is you don't go out and want to tell the world about your deepest, darkest secrets. And, you know, I expose in the book infidelity, I expose substance misuse in my own life, not just my children's life, and kind of expose me having a complete meltdown. And you you think like, why would some professional man or woman want to do that? And I'd say not any clear thinking one would. But for me, it was my children had suffered so much from substance misuse, and I felt like I needed to tell a story of both of really family, what happened, and family hope and healing around how we got ourselves out of it. And so I felt like being honest and 
revealing that in a book since I've been given some level of writing skills and had been a writer that seemed so important. It felt like that if I'm called to get into schools and speak and help students and teachers like I am, the way to to for students and teachers and parents to have trust with me is to tell an honest story and use that as a tool to open doors and begin the conversation. So I didn't just, I wasn't shooting from the hip when I wrote the memoir. It was part of a larger strategy. To be honest, uh, there's some, you know, power at work there. Uh, it's work it, because it's worked better than I thought. And, you know, it's a calling and I'm just kind of following it. And that book has opened doors, which is now getting us into front of parents and students. And now we're really beginning, I think, to have a conversation of, okay, what can we do about it? Your story is compelling and the honesty in the story is compelling. And I think that's what people connect with many times. And you've worked with a large range of students and people because this is a, an issue that touches everybody's life at some level. But you started working with college students. You've got the William McGee Institute at the University of Mississippi. And our work, though, started with how you're beginning to get into middle school and high school students. Right. So what brought you into that? How did you get connected to Baylor and to our work? What, 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 why move beyond college? Because clearly it's an issue on college campuses. But that's right. That's right. That's such a great question, John. And okay. So, you know, the great thing about a calling is anybody, you know, I didn't understand callings, first of all, originally, because I'd never had one. <laughs> I, I was in search desperately of my faith and my purpose in the world. I was just in a, a mad wrestling with it, not, not MAD, angry madness kind of uh, wrestling with searching for that. And when I really got the calling, you know, it's a it's a process. It's a it's a step thing. I think often for us on these journeys. And originally, I was called and really knew that. You know, my son William, who we lost to an accidental drug overdose, he had been an honors college in co- student in college. He was in a Institute for International Studies. He ran track at the University of Mississippi, all while making A's and having this wonderful girlfriend. And it all looked good on paper. And then I had another son almost die of an accidental drug overdose at a fraternity house on a university campus. And, you know, thankfully, my son, who almost died, came back to life and found real success in treatment. And he's still sober today. My son, William, graduated from college and then he died of an overdose. So I'm looking at my sons and also my daughter who struggled from an eating disorder in college. And I'm like, okay, I've got this calling to dig in and help find solutions for students. So I need to get back to this University of Mississippi campus where all this happened, where my children were students, and I need to go help find solutions. Well, it so happens with a calling, that was part of the process. I was to get there because this is where my work was to be done, but this kind of amazing thing happened. I got on campus and we began to work and help students, but I realized we're so much treating the result. Very important, very important work, very important work. They need the support. They deserve the support. We have to be there for them. But here's the thing, John, my children were not unlike me and unlike 95% of the students I engaged with. They would all have 
they would all reveal their sub 90 plus percent of their substance misuse problem begins shortly after puberty in, in early high school and late middle school or early high school. And I began to say, like, okay, if it's happening, then why aren't we doing more? We understand we need to teach Latin earlier. We understand we got to get algebra earlier to students. We need to teach them about themselves. They're managing their feelings and everything they face earlier. So the calling was then fully revealed. It, it's get upstream to K through 12. And really, who told me that was college student after college student after college student. They're like, yeah, you're right. I need help now. And I'm going to go do it. I wish. I had had this earlier. That's such a powerful point. And I got to see you speak to uh, you know, thousands of Mississippi students. And those college students were super engaged in what you were saying. And then also in the stories of the students that you brought up there who talked about their own struggles with addiction, which started long before college. And we hear that over and over again, even at Baylor, we, we see that as well. And so that, that, upstream thinking, Dan Heath wrote a book called Upstream, where he cites yes. the story of, of the guy who leaves the drowning kids downriver, and the people are like, where are you going? And he's like, well, I'm going upstream to find the guy who's throwing all the kids in the river. And I <laughs> that's, that's what we're doing in this yes. work, is we're trying to get upstream before these things be become habits and addictions to the point where we're abusing and give them a sense of what gives life as opposed to yes. what takes life. Because in the end, that substance abuse use of deadening feelings. It's trying to search for purpose. It's searching for something beyond what they're finding in their day-to-day -day life. So what we're working on in K-12 schools is so much more than a avoid this. It's drawing them to something more. So uh, I want to get to that part. But before I do that, I, some of the facts that you share with me as a parent, so I listen to you right. as an educator and as a parent, there's some scary things going on. So if you were to say, what, what's the thing that scares you most about what you're seeing right now as it relates to substance misuse and abuse? Okay. First of all, the thing that scares me is the students are using a whole lot more in a, a whole lot more often and a whole lot more different substances than parents or educators have any idea about. I will have parents go, you know, I mean, we're pretty aware. I mean, we know what's going on. And I think, oh, you don't. You don't know what's going on. You trust me. You don't. They're using more. They're using it more creatively. Most parents think that marijuana, for example, is the marijuana that was around when they were growing up. It's not how it's used, the potency of it. It's there is so uh, counterfeit pills. Students will say, well, I got this Adderall from a friend, but often it's counterfeit. And often that counterfeit pill has fentanyl in it. And it's so complicated what's happening and it's stunning and parents and teachers, they think they know often, but they don't because it's happened so fast. Things have changed so fast and so drastically. Well, and you shared the percentage of THC compared to when, when we were kids to now, I forget the actual it's, rate. It's, it's nearly 400% stronger. So John, I encounter students in high school and colleges all the time who tell me I'm completely addicted to marijuana, completely. It's raising anxiety and culture tells me it'll reduce my anxiety. I feel terrible using it, but I can't quit. I 
I get that on a regular basis. But the average person in America will tell you they think marijuana is not addictive, but it's not marijuana of yesterday. Maybe it didn't used to be, but the research is clear now. It is. Right. And and you know, the fact that you shared it was in your talk that I didn't know it, that I always assumed that marijuana reduced anxiety. But in a high percentage of kids, the majority of people, that actually isn't the case. It, it actually, actually will increase it depending on their personality type and the strain of marijuana they're using. So I'll have parents say to me, they'll call me and they say, my, I don't think my child has a substance problem. I think they're just drowning in anxiety. I'm like, OK. Well, they're using marijuana on a daily basis, and I. But but you know that's for their anxiety. I said, but you just told me they're drowning in anxiety. I said I can point you to some research that's very clear that shows for some personality types and some strains that for at least fifty percent or more people, it might not, it's probably not even reducing their anxiety, John. It's greatly exacerbating it. it it's like the instigator. Yeah. So let's go to the positive side of this. Where are you finding the most hope in the work that you're doing right now? Uh, that one gives me chill bumps. You gave me chill bumps in that question. The most hope is in the students. Mm. Like yeah. they, they want joy. They do not. I, I don't find almost any who actually want to be strung out and habitually using substances. I don't. They want joy. It's just that culture is teaching them this is how you change your feelings. Mm. And, and substances do change your feelings. They remove you from reality in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they do change their feelings, but it's not it's it's non rewarding in the moment and long term, right? In all the host of issues that come because it's non-genuine. You're not going to flourish on substance on habitual substance use, period. You will not. And what I find, John, is those students want to flourish and they want their joy. And that is the most hope. I actually, this is, you know, the old thing of like, um, I'm a lot older than you, but like, so I'll say our generation though, just because we're both uh, professional adults compared to students. I, our generation loves to say what's wrong with them, students, students today. They actually, if we're going to if we're going to cast a cast a glare and need to look in the mirror, we need to look at our generation. Mm -hmm. We need to look at how we're teaching them and how we're supporting them and how we're helping them learn about themselves. And I think we've had our head in the sand for too long. We have to see them and we have to hear them and we have to engage with them. And when we can truly do that better, instead of just telling them what they can't do, they're highly responsive. I mean, they're, we know this anecdotally. We know this research-wise. They are highly responsive. Yeah. And we've known for thousands of years when you go back to Augustine and see, like, it's not about avoiding things. It's drawing people in and reorienting our loves into here's what brings life. And so, again, you mentioned it. You didn't feel like you had a calling and, and you didn't have a purpose. I mean, life right. without meaning is hollow. And so we're going to fill that with all kinds of other things. And we go down that path of substance abuse or other things that harm us. It may temporarily numb something or help us right. not 
to be aware of something. But in the end, it's not, it's still there. And those choices exacerbate things. So other than repli- avoiding replicating DARE, the drug abuse, dense resistance education that was promoted in the 90s primarily and has been proven to not really do right. much at all to reduce substance abuse. And in fact, some studies have shown that it increases the likelihood of substance abuse in high school students. Uh, so we certainly don't want to do that. I was a fifth grade teacher who had to support a Chicago police officer who implemented the D.A.R.E. program. We had D.A.R.E. songs. We had D.A.R.E. graduation. We had D.A.R.E. t-shirts. And even at the time, I was like, wow, this! I, if this is helping, that's great. I am shocked. And I loved our police officer, but there was, oh, a, yes. there was a limited amount of impact that I was imagining. So we certainly don't want to do that. And when we right. started partnering on this work, that was a clear, we're, we're, we're not doing that. So my question for you is, what specifically do you see that educators can do to better address student well-being in a holistic yeah. way as opposed to just at a, a curriculum about avoidance? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, number one is we, we have to speak to them on their level of what they want. And as I said, I mean, it's very clear they, they all want happiness and joy. I mean, they do. The vast majority do. You poll, study, I mean, they want it. So, so we know that. So that's where we have to approach them is on with curriculum and engagement that, that helps teach them about that. We taught them that cigarettes were not great and you can't drink and drive. Education works. And in this means, in this level, we have to do education that works, which is speaking to them on their level. And so instead of, as you know, just telling them what they can't do, we have to approach it about what they want, which is they want to be happy. They do. They want joy. And so we have to bring the curriculum beginning very early on, just like they earn, learn that two plus two equals four, just like they earn, learn how the A and the E work together in the English language. We have to teach them about their emotions about how they process those and how those might work and what things might take them. And so it's progressive. You're not going to teach somebody, you're not going to teach a fourth grader about fentanyl, but you can teach them about themselves and their peers, about how they regulate emotions and what type, how things they may feel and what they can do about it. For example, a brisk walk puts blood in your flow into your brain and you literally feel better. It is, it's an old thing called a natural high. Like you actually feel better. Your ideas will flow more clearly. You, you have more energy. It's an old school natural high. We have to actually teach that and other tools literally and explain to them how it's working and why and how that can shift feelings. We have to explain to them things about sleep values and how in sleep deprivation, it often in young people will mimic eight or older uh, people ADHD symptoms. So they may not even be suffering from ADHD. They may actually need two hours more sleep a night, right? These are the type things that we have to teach them so they can learn about themselves and therefore develop tools to be able to manage them. Yeah, so, so well said. And I have a 14 and 17 year old daughter at home, and I can say those two hours can make the difference between uh, a daughter who's <laughs> a joy and a daughter who's really struggling just to get through the day. So I'm a big advocate there. And, and we know this is true. I think part of it is being explicit and teaching it. And part of what we're putting together is a, is our materials that 
because we're at Baylor, we can have an implicitly faith-based message in it. We can talk about meaning and purpose in ways that can be used in public schools or in private That's right. We can be more explicit in, in Christian schools, but in public schools, that purpose and meaning and being all that we were created to be, that can transcend context because I think part of it is, is educators, us modeling those flourishing behaviors. So flourishing people lead flourishing communities. You can't tell kids, hey, you should be sleeping enough and you should be exercising and you should be eating well and you should be enjoying social interactions. And then as teachers and administrators spending 90 hours a week in our schools, you know, burning the candle at both ends, doing things that are good, but to our own detriment, to the detriment of our loved ones. And so I think that modeling goes a long way because kids are very quick to point out hypocrisy. (laughs) And so if they see you saying one thing and then doing another, they're going to be much more likely to do what you're doing. So I appreciate your message in, in the book because you're talking about yourself as an adult and then you're talking about your kids and the way those things overlap because I think what we model is what we get back. And I do have to say, having met Hudson and I haven't meet um I, I obviously wasn't able to meet William and I haven't and I've, I've gotten to meet Ken. So I've met your whole family. Yes. They Hudson is an impressive adult who's figured out ways to flourish himself in business and the work he does in the outdoors. And so I think that's one of those things. And how how old is Hudson now? Hudson is now thirty one. 31. Yeah. So as a thirty one year old, I mean a lot of the people listening to this are gonna be twenties, thirties, forties. I mean Yes. He's much healthier, not to avoid substances, but to right. just be happier and healthier. And so I feel like there's a great message in here for adults as well. Is there anything else you would add to that? I would just say, you know, on Hudson, for example, like 10 years ago, we were, I was counting the days to pull the plug on him. He was in a coma and a ventilator after an accidental drug overdose. And, you know, he lived such a life of joy and purpose and in principle. And when he woke up, faith had a big part of that. And as you said, he, I've watched him. He, he went, he went after things that he enjoyed fly fishing, finding a career path of things he enjoyed. And, you know, it was, it was very purposeful. And that, I think that probably helped me with anything, understand that, that, Seeking the joy can help you avoid the other substantially, but also I had gone through a change in my life. And instead of reaching for a drink every day at five and modeling that behavior, my son began to see a change. And and I'll be honest, I mean, I did write a book about that in Dear William, and I had an impact on the culture in my family in one way. And when I changed my life, I had an impact on the change in my family in another way. And I think societally, we have to really look at that with our young people, as you said, in modeling that behavior. We know they follow it. They absolutely do. It's with parents. It's with other role models in their ecosystem. They absolutely follow that. And we have to really be aware of that and think about the cultures that we create within our schools in the leadership around our students. Yeah, I love in this 
Next part I like to call it's Adam. Adam Grant always refers to this as the lightning round, and uh, I'm going to see if a great storyteller like you can do these answers in us in a word or a phrase. But and it may be that the books that you have coming out subsequently now, where you're giving some, hey, here's how to think about this. Here's some practical ways to do this. They may be helpful here, and you might be just repackaging some of the things that you've already said as a way to reinforce them. But so let's let's try this lightning round. So one, okay, I hope I've had enough coffee. So yeah, here we go. Uh, what's the scariest fact about substance abuse that you think educators do not know? So if you had to just pick one, what would it be? The scariest fact that educators do not know that marijuana is 400% stronger than it used to be because so many students are using that. It is absolutely detrimental. Yeah, uh, that was shocking to me. And I was just in Seattle and seeing the the substance abuse that's happening on the streets, the, the way that's been elevated, where they've gone way beyond marijuana. It's everywhere, right? It is. So it common uh, and it makes these other these young people today feel like it's OK. But I say, look, the thing is, in most states, even even states that now have legal marijuana, Look up the studies. Most marijuana is still being bought from dealers. And, and so if you have a large percentage of our students today regularly using marijuana and it is three to four hundred percent stronger and therefore very problematic. Let's also not forget this, John. They have a relationship with a drug dealer at that point. And that drug dealer does not have their best interest at heart. And that drug dealer will eventually offer them pills, which are mostly counterfeit. That drug dealer relationship is so problematic in their life. That is the single most scary thing that most people don't realize. Yeah. Wow. So on the flip side of that, uh, you've already said what you're most hopeful about, but what excites you the most about your work? What excites me the most about my work is when I see fuzzy-minded, clear young people who then become clear-minded young people who look at me and engage with me with the warmth and the smiles, and they have this spirit running in them. And I, I just want to go get on a megaphone that reaches to everybody in the world and say, I wish you could see this and feel this. If we could unleash a generation of more young people with that spirit and warmth, we will change this world. That's what excites me the most. What is one word that you would use to describe your work with students? Life-changing. They, yeah. they are smarter than we are. We just need to listen to them. We think we're smarter and we're not. Yeah. What's one word that describes your work with educators? Tired. And I say that with all respect to every educator listening. I not only say it with respect, I say it with empathy. Mm. It's been hard. And we're asking for a lot. And we need to give you some support. And I think part of the work we do, John, level one, right, is let's get in, let's listen to students, let's figure some things out. I think part two of that one day becomes really giving educators the extra support they need, not just to support students in this way, but also that they need. Because they have mental health challenges being asked to deliver all they're doing, and they have families of their own facing this. I think they're a little tired. I think they need some support and help and understanding and empathy. What's one word that you would use to describe your work with parents? Less knowledgeable about what their children face than they think they are. Wow. Now, those uh, last two hit home as educator and parent. I definitely feel that. and. Um, 
Yeah, that's real. So if you had to give your best piece of advice to, let's say, to educators, what's your best piece of advice for us as we uh, enter into this work and get the, the opportunity to come alongside kids? Yep. Do this work. What would you say? Would you we, we have to have a little bit of a paradigm shift in a, in the in the mental health and substance realm. We're going to have to adopt a stance of listening. We built an education model on telling them. We're going to have to have a little more shift to engagement of listening because the studies are clear. Parents and educators are going to have to understand the studies are clear. If you see them and hear them, and therefore engage with them. The it's infinite possibilities of reaching them. It, I, I, I saw just another study the other day, John, just about what we know reaffirming like sadness that in, if somebody has sadness, if they get if you if they're able to talk to somebody, they feel better. Uh, hello. We know this. So think about students and they're feeling feelings they don't even understand. And they're on the hamster wheel and they're trying to chase all their excellence. Things well up and develop and then they don't understand. And so they therefore, sometimes when they're presented substances, they go, okay, and it changes how they feel. They embrace that. We have to start listening them to help unlock more of that to be able to figure out how to help them. Though. So my one word is listening for educators and also parents, it, 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 listening, listening, listening. One thing, and, I, and we'll wrap it up here, but one thing I've appreciated about you is now that you're on mission, you make time for those things that are most important to you and you eliminate the things that aren't. And I think in order to listen, we have to have that margin built in because I think there are times where it feels like listening is inconvenient. And with <laughs> kids, you have to listen when they're ready to share. And if you aren't ready you're not going to get that trust, but you're not going to get the vulnerability. And so I'm always encouraging teachers as busy as you are. If a kid needs to talk, that's the most important thing you're going to do for eternity that day. And so we have to build that margin in. So I appreciate about that, that about you and the way you're living now. And I know that hasn't always been the case. And dear William, you know, you were a very successful writer, businessman, all these things that are all. And I thought father, but I was spending a lot of time telling my William what he needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, Hey, good reminder, listening. So important and so hard to do. I mean, it seems hard to do. Seems simple, but it's hard. Well, David, I, I really appreciate your time and I appreciate your friendship and the work that we get to do. And I'm excited about where things are headed. Books are out there. Look up David McGee. He's written a lot of things. Uh, he's got a lot more things coming out. You have a book coming out this year, right? I've got one coming out this August. Things have changed. What every parent and educator should know about the substance misuse and mental health crisis. Uh, but but also you have a book coming out uh, into this uh, soon. Yes, yes. No, just teaching will be out. And the reason why we're overlapping here is the feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. If you don't have that well-being right for each kid, the feedback and engagement don't matter. They and don't. This is where this is so helpful. So really appreciate your time, David. Appreciate you and, and all you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate you so much, John. And we're going to have a fun journey together and can't wait for all the people who care and feel the same way like us and joining it and see where it goes in the future. Awesome. Thank you, David. David's word was listening. And I 
just keep going back to that since we had this interview that that is so much of what life is and so much about what building relationships is about. And so I want to thank you all for listening uh, to this podcast and any of the other ones that you do and for the listening that you do for your colleagues and for your kids and for all those people that the Lord puts in your path. That ability to listen well is so powerful because everyone wants to be seen, known, and heard. So I hope you have a great week and keep doing that great listening that all great educators do. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Baylor Center for School Leadership. Join us for our Just Schools Academy this June, where we will use Dr. Eckert's book, Just Teaching, to do better work together.